We're going to be in Romans 12 again as we continue to work our way through. And uh, I want to I want to um, begin by asking a question, and I hope by this point in the service you get the answer right. Uh, what is to be the most defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus Christ? What, what is the attribute or character quality? that is to be most evident in a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, I understand that that question um, could bring about a variety of different answers, um, depending on how passionately you feel about something, or where you land on the spectrum of being a, a person of truth, a person of grace, and all of that. And I think there are some different answers, some different answers that would all be legitimate, but I want to suggest to you that there is a a characteristic that seems to be dominant, one that is spoken of in Scripture very clearly, and at the very least cannot be easily dismissed. In fact, it, it should never be dismissed, for if it is, it actually indicates that you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, but just the opposite. In fact, 1 John tells us much about this. So, if you have your Bible, listen, we're going to start there, and I promise we're going to get back to Romans 12, but this is important, I think, for us. We're moving into uh, an incredibly important section of Scripture. Not that any of them aren't incredibly important, but some are needed at specific times. First John chapter 4, I want you to hear this this is what John writes. John, who, who is the disciple who is loved by Jesus, remember, he identifies himself as that. Listen to what he says. He said, beloved, just, just hold on to that word for a second. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves, listen to this, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Beloved, just hear that again. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Uh, we, We could go on. 
In fact, I would encourage you to, to just sit and soak maybe later today in, in this phenomenal chapter. I hope you get the sense of, of what John believes is important and, and one of the most defining characteristics of a Christian. And I want to remind you of how Paul began his letter to the Romans all the way back in chapter 1, verse 7. Listen to this. He says this, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. And after he spends some time describing and detailing in in very graphic ways the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, the guilt of man. Remember, we we were in chapter 5 a long time ago, I know now, but I want to just remind you what what was said there. Verse 5 says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then he gives us these incredible words in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You you need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this. God is love. Jesus is love. The Holy Spirit is love, okay? The the Godhead, the triune Godhead is love. And I, I want you to think about Jesus for a moment. Everything Jesus did was love. All of his actions were love, every one of them. All of his expressions were love. All of his motives were love. He lived in love. He served in love. And as this passage reminds us, he died in love. He bore a crown of thorns in love. He was mocked and shamed for love. He hung on a cross and bled for love. So the question I want to ask from this is, what is our response to the love of God to be? That's what Paul is is wanting us to consider when he says the words, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God. He's wanting us to gather up all of these ideas about the mercies of God, about the, the love of God and the grace of God. And he's wanting us to say, how now should I respond? What is my life to be in light of this magnificent love? And the answer, you see, is found right here in chapter 12, verse 9. Listen to what Paul says. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He's turning the corner He's moving us from this place of, of right thinking and right serving into right loving. And he's, he's calling us, the people of God, to be a people 
of genuine love. Why? Because as we've looked at already this morning, our love, believe it or not, is actually the greatest indicator that we have understood and believed the gospel. This is what Jesus said. He he said, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, by how you love one another. Our love shows that we are not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds. It shows that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It shows that we are sons of God because we are becoming more and more like our older brother, like our Savior, like our King, Jesus, the Son of God. So here's the question that I want to ask and answer from this passage. How can our love be genuine? How should this look in our lives? And I want to show you three ways. First, our love is genuine only when it is examined in the light of the gospel. Only when it's examined in light of the gospel. He begins this phrase, let love be genuine. This is such an amazing word, this idea of being genuine. It's this idea of being sincere or unhypocritical. Back in the Greco-Roman times, it it meant without a mask. There was a, a, a metaphorical aspect to this word. You see, back in the ancient times, actors wore masks and you never saw their faces. And the masks that they wore, they actually reflected the emotions or expressions of the individuals who wore them. So, you know, your mask would wear a frown if your character was sad, or maybe gritting teeth if they were angry, or smiling if they were happy. But you see, that was a reflection of the individual's state that they were playing And the idea here is about being sincere and authentic and real. What you see, in other words, is what you get. And this command, let love be genuine, it stands in stark contrast to the facades of the kind of love that we often give and receive because of sin. The kind of love that is often portrayed and propagated by the world. You see, the world wants to promote mainly uh, self-love. But the Word of God promotes both the love of God and the love of others. And he qualifies this statement in two ways. He actually tells us what genuine love looks like. Look at what he says. Look at the verse with me. He says, abhor what is evil, that's the first part, and secondly, hold fast to what is good. That idea of abhor means to hate. It is an incredibly strong word. You see, hate is a Christian value and even a Christian attitude. And I know what some of you are saying. Well, we don't use the word hate in our house. Well, you need to. It's biblical, okay? Paul actually commands that we Christians be a people of hatred. Listen, love, if it is genuine will always have a positive hatred towards what is evil. It has to. If you don't hate anything, listen to what the Word of God wants you to know. That would actually be unloving. 
And we, we do. We, we hate things as Christians, don't we? If we genuinely love the Lord, we hate certain things in this world. Like, I hate rape, don't you? I hate child abuse. I hate abortion. I hate sex trafficking. I hate it. Love always hates what God hates. Love always hates what is evil. But you see, our problem as sinful, fallen human beings is that we often love the wrong things and we hate the right things. There's a war going on. It's back to this pressure from the world and the pressure of the Word of God, and they're at odds with one another so that our hearts, they feel this this tension and this pull. We hate oftentimes what we're supposed to love, and we love, sadly, to our destruction oftentimes what we are supposed to hate. And while we look around at the world and we can point to things that we hate and we ought to hate, let me remind you and let me encourage you to consider this. The most dangerous threat to us isn't the sin outside of us, it's the sin within us. Our greatest enemy is not, believe it or not, is not Satan. It certainly isn't the world system Our greatest enemy is sin and the sin that continues to live inside of our own hearts. So the question I want to ask you is this, do do you hate it, the hate inside you, with the same kind of intent, with a greater intensity than you hate the sin that is done to you or the sin that you see around you? Do you hate that sin inside you more? Again, not that we shouldn't hate those things outside of us, we, we ought to, but my concern is that we do not hate the sin in our hearts as seriously as we hate other things. And, and we need to make it our primary concern. The primary error of, of hate and abhorrence in our own hearts ought to be the sin that continues to live and exist and seek to destroy us. You say, why? Why should we make this such a great priority? Because sin will keep us from loving God, and sin will keep us from loving one another. But you see, it's hating sin together. As the church, as the community of faith, it's hating sin together that will actually be one of the greatest things to forge unity within us. But there's a positive side as well to genuine love. He tells us what it is. Not only are we supposed to abhor what is evil, but we are to hold fast to what is good. We are to cling to or be fused to or be glued to what is good. You say, well, what is good? Well, he's pointing us all the way back to verse 2 where he told us how we know what is good. We are transformed by the renewal of our minds that by testing we may discern what is the will of God. Listen, what is good and acceptable and perfect. True love, in other words, is discerning. It carefully distinguishes what is worthy of being hated and what is worthy of holding on to. But you see, only through Christ is this description realized. 
In other words, you, you can't truly hate what God hates and love what God loves apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only then, listen, that the Spirit of God truly awakens your heart and your mind to what is dishonoring and displeasing to God. It, it is only then, when you, when you look to Jesus when you see your own sin and you see that God alone has come to rescue you from your sin, that he paid for your sin, that he rose victoriously to conquer your sin, the power of sin has been broken when Jesus, listen, when Jesus said it is finished, you want to know what he gave you the power to do? He gave you the power to love him, to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. Apart from that, you can't do it. Apart from the, the power of the Spirit of God within you, you can't truly love God and you can't truly hate sin, not the way you're supposed to. How can love and hate exist together? You ever think of this? Like, how is this possible? Well, can I, just, can I just encourage you again? We've been singing about it all morning. Can I just point you back to the cross? I mean, this is how love and hate exist together in the Christian life. At the cross, we are given the, the answer to how love and hate exist, aren't we? Because at the cross, we see the demonstration of God's hate for sin, right? When Jesus Christ was put upon that cross, and when he declared it was finished and gave up his spirit, what he was saying was this, I hate sin so much, I hate what it's done to my creation, I hate what it's done to humanity, that I was willing to absorb the full weight of wrath from God to deal with it. I hate it enough that I would give my own life. I hate enough that I would step out of my glory in heaven into this sin-sick world. I hate it that much. And see, in that hatred, we see, don't we, the love of God. Because as he says, I hate the sin that has kept you far from me. Don't you hear him say, I love you so much that I will deal with that to bring you close to me. And that's, that's the gospel right there, where we get the love and hate of God colliding and as we look to the cross, this is the key for us, as we look to the cross and we look, listen, at what genuine love means, we look at there, we, we examine the cross, we see the gospel, and we ourselves are informed about how this is supposed to look in our own lives. You say, why is this so challenging then? Why do I struggle so much? Why do I so often love, love what I should hate and hate what I should love? There's a lot of reasons. Let me give you one. I think one of the reasons this is a struggle is because we, we are, going all the way back to verse 1 and 2, we are very influenced by the way the world wants us to think about love and hate. And so it, it breeds confusion. You know, the world, it, it talks about love in different ways. It talks about hate in different ways. The world blurs the lines between good and evil. They tell us, this is what the world is telling us, especially right now, it's loud and clear, genuine love is about rejecting truth and embracing tolerance. That's what the world says. This is what's being force-fed to our kids. This is what's being propagated in the media. This is what is being spoon-fed to us in, in every mainstream show we watch. Genuine love is not about objective truth. It's about tolerance. It's about letting people do whatever they want. 
It's about subjectivity. Whatever, whatever makes you feel good, do it. However you want to live your life, do it. And, and see, when I say do it, what I really mean, according to the world standards, is see, I'm loving you. In fact, they actually, they, they go further than that, don't they? We're beyond this point where mere tolerance is okay by the world's standards. You see, what they're telling us is silence is violence. The world says disapproval or disagreement is hatred. The world tells us that to affirm, support, and encourage is the only acceptable expression of love. To oppose or even to disagree charitably is actually in many, in many circles and contexts labeled an expression of hate. In our cultural moment, listen, Christians, we face the reality of being accused of hate speech for simply saying what God says is true. This is why we read the statement a few weeks back about Bill C-4. We wanted to make it abundantly clear in a time, listen, where, where there could be punishment, where there could be jail time, you know, who knows what's coming down the pipe, but we wanted to make it clear that we are going to, listen, we are going to adhere to God's standard of truth. We agree with what God says genuine love is, not with what the world says genuine love is. And it is not a loving thing for us to simply express tolerance or, or to keep quiet about what God clearly says is true. We will increasingly, you need to hear this church, I believe this with all my heart, we will increasingly be told that we are intolerant for our views, that they are archaic, that we are sexists, we are bigots. We will be ostracized and we will be marginalized for our beliefs. But can I encourage you with something? This is not the first time this has happened in the life of the church. <laughs> this has always been the case with the people of God. You can't get away. You read it from the Old Testament into the New. You just, you just can't escape it. When God's people stand upon the truth, when God's people love God more than they love this world, it's inevitable. They're going to clash with the, the world around them, and it's not always going to look pretty. Can I, can I just maybe make a qualification here? We love the truth, and, and in genuine love expresses the truth, but while all truth is, is truth, not all truth is equal in terms of its seriousness and significance. This is just a, a kind way of saying we're not called to die on every hill. We don't die on every truth the same way. We, like, we understand that, don't we? That is not to minimize truth. That's called wisdom. That's about discerning where we drive our stake in the ground. An example, again, of this was, was what we did with Bill C-4. There are certain things. We drive the stake in the ground. We make it abundantly clear. We will not waver. We will not compromise. We will not capitulate. We will hold fast no matter what the consequences. This is also not an, a license to sin in the way we express our disagreement with the world. We are always held responsible for how we choose to respond. It's never a license to respond in ways that are displeasing to the Lord, that are unchristlike. We must continue to maintain a Christ-like disposition in our disagreement. 
This is a call to examine all things in light of the gospel. This is a tough sell in the world, but let me tell you this, it's even a tough sell in the church. This kind of thinking is creeping into the church. And if you think it's not crept into our church in some ways, in some people's lives, you're kidding yourself. But I want you to notice where Paul aims his first command. When he says, let love be genuine, when he says we need to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, who is he speaking to? Who is he speaking? He's speaking to believers, and he's calling them, listen, to focus primarily on their attitudes and actions in relation, come on church, to who? To other believers. This is incredibly important to see. And the idea here is this. Believers are called to be loving believers. We need these two characteristics in order to do that. Secondly, we need to see this, that it is expressed in light of the gospel. Our love is genuine only, listen, only when it is expressed in light of the gospel. We're moving here from theory now into action. Paul here reflects this early Christian understanding of the church as an extended family whose members are bound together in intimate fellowship and should therefore exhibit toward one another a heartfelt and consistent concern. Listen to how he expresses this, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. This is so, so good. Again, the context here is of a family. He, he looks at the church and he says, you're not, just, you're not just a body. I love how he shifts metaphors or analogies, right? He moves from the, the body and every, every part playing its part and the whole thing functioning and growing to this display, listen, of a family. And the point here is intimacy. It's not just that we're all these kind of parts that mechanically work together. It's no, we're, we're a family that loves one another. In fact, we have brotherly affection for one another. There is a, a devotion to one another that, that is obvious and it's visible. I understand, listen, that, that in the context of a family, there can be disagreement, even strong disagreement. We need to hear this now, maybe more than ever. I, I think this is providential of the Lord to have us in this text. I was thinking over the last couple of days, man, maybe God wouldn't have been more providential if you had us preaching on Romans 13 today. And then the Lord reminded me, no, I have you exactly where I want you. You should forget about government right now. The, the biggest problem Christians are facing is, is not their view on the government, or their view on how to protest, the biggest problem Christians are facing right now is that they can't figure out how to love one another amidst their differences. Just can't figure out how to be unified. They, they want to divide. They, they, they want to see the body chopped up into pieces and scattered about. And I just, this is so confusing to me because, because the Scriptures are so clear that that is Satan's work, not the Lord's. So Satan wants to do. Satan wants to divide. S Satan wants to alienate us from one another. It's the Spirit who wants us to be united. Yes, united in truth. And for those of you who are like, well, we've got to be united on doctrine. Yes, I, I agree. And if you don't think I agree, you haven't been here long enough. But man, do we ever need to hear about what it means to truly love one another? 
There is a family love in the body that is devoted to one another through thick and through thin. And we don't get to choose our brothers and sisters, by the way. Because I think so often, like, don't we try to, like we want to? We would be more content if, if God said, listen, I'll tell you what, why don't you choose who should be in the family and I'll just stand back here and see how you do. God's like, no, I, I've already made the decisions. This is my family. I'm the father. I've already chosen all of my adopted sons and daughters. You don't get a say in this. It's good for us to be reminded of because so often in the body of Christ, we want to treat people as if they don't belong. We don't get to reject people based on their personality, based on their preferences, or based on our problems or the problems that others have caused for us. But that, that certainly doesn't stop us from trying. You see, we often in the body of Christ have these categories that we put people into. We love certain people, right? You know what I'm talking about. There are certain people we love. And for whatever reason, we just got a strong affinity and affection towards them. We love certain people. Then there are certain people in the family of God that we just like. I'm like, yeah, they're okay. They're all right. Like, I'll stop and have a conversation with them. But then there are, are people um, that we just kind of put up with. We just kind of put up with them. We certainly don't love them. We don't really like them. We just put up with them. And then there's some people, listen, that we avoid and people that we despise for a whole variety of different reasons. And while we may have, listen, greater affinity and stronger relationships with some people in the body of Christ, that's, that's not wrong. God actually says, in light of the gospel, you are to be devoted to the entire body. Why? Because this is your brother and your sister. This is, this is your family. In other words, there are no red-headed stepchildren in God's family. And by the way, I, I don't know the origins of that particular insult, and I have no idea why redheads get such a bad rap. And, and if you're a redhead, I love you. Like, there's no issues here, okay? And I think Mark Sylvester is deeply offended as well. <laughs> God, God has no favorite children in His family, okay? He has no favorite children. Red, blonde, brown, gray, Curly, frizzy, bald, doesn't matter. All are precious in His sight. That's the new version. We're going to introduce it. In <laughs> introducing the kids' ministry next week. <laughs> but we know this. In the gospel, right, God shows mercy and love without distinction. There's no partiality. We agree with that, amen? Are we living like that? It's always the question, isn't it? It's always, we can always say we agree. The real question is, when the rubber meets the road, I mean, what, what does our life demonstrate? Do we really believe this? Are we really doing this is the question. And I get it. There are some people who have been greatly wounded in the church, even in this church, by, by people in the same family. And listen, I, like, there are wounds in the body. Do you remember your family? I had three brothers, all of us, right? Four boys, all within the span of five years, from oldest to youngest. I'm shocked that my parents are still sane. 
My brothers and I, we fought like crazy growing up. But those are my brothers. And, and I, I love them no matter what, even when they move all the way across the country. You've heard the saying, listen, you've heard the saying, blood is thicker than water, right? You know why people say that, right? They're saying, look, family. Family is what matters most. We say this, right? Blood is thicker than water. Can you hear this, church? Listen, the blood of Christ is thicker. It's thicker. And it's the blood of Christ that unites us into the same family. So how devoted are we to one another? I know some of you have been hurt. I know some of you are struggling with anger and bitterness towards others. For some of you, listen, someone has made one mistake and you've scratched them off of your list. You're done with them. I just like, really? Really? Can I, can I just say this as gently but as clearly as possible? That is not allowed in the body of Christ. We are family. You may have to earn back trust in family relationships, but you never have to earn back love. Why? Because genuine love is always expressed in light of the gospel. In other words, listen, it's, it's never about what someone has done to us. It's never in light of our pain. It's never in light of our preferences. And that the person that you struggle to love, that you refuse to love, here's what you need to understand, because of what they've done to you, because of how they feel about a certain topic or issue, that person that you are distancing yourself from, that you refuse to love, listen to me, listen to me, Jesus died for that person. He adopted them into his family. He paid the same price for them that he paid for you. And that means we don't have a right to treat them as any less a part of the family of God. And isn't it so true that oftentimes our ability to love others, it says more about us than it does about the person we're trying to avoid, isn't it? It says that we don't understand the gospel or it says that we refuse to believe the gospel or refuse to apply the gospel. What it says is, is that we are not, we are not accepting what the gospel says, that we love others because we have been loved in Christ Jesus, that we forgive others as we have been forgiven in Christ. Amen? I mean, this is what the gospel does in the life of a believer. I'm not saying it's always easy, but I am saying it is what the scriptures command and call us to over and over again Love is not genuine when we refuse to be devoted to one another and instead distance ourselves from one another. That is not biblical love. The gospel itself is about reconciliation. The gospel is about we who are far off, who have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so what we ought to see happening in the life of the, the body of Christ, when people are hurt and offended, instead of pushing people away, that's anti-gospel, what we do is we work to draw near. That is what the gospel looks like in practice in the family of God. We must abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good if we're going to have this kind of love in the family of God. You see, brotherly affection cares more about spiritual maturity in self and in others than it does about, about your own personal or others' emotional joy. 
Do you understand what I mean by that? So often we're more driven in our relationships by appeasing people, by making them happy, and we're not, we're not nearly driven as much by their spiritual maturity, by what is right, by what they need. We want to tell people what they want to hear so we don't lose a friend instead of telling them what they need to hear and be a true friend. You see, this brotherly affection in the family of God, it is expressed in, in at least two ways, in encouraging and correcting. Let's talk about correcting for, for just a moment. What I want you to see is this, that if we are to love one another with genuine love, with brotherly affection, that means that we all have the responsibility to call one another out on sin and to be called out on sin, to address sin where it's present in our lives and present in the lives of someone else. And I understand, some of you don't like that. To be quite honest with you, I don't enjoy it myself either, but I'll tell you what, I need it. We are responsible as the family of God for the long-term health of the body, for the long-term strength and stability of the family. That means that we must address sin in the family of God. Here's why I'm saying this, because we, we often have a very lopsided view of what it means to, to have genuine love, but, but let me give you an example of this biblically. You see, one of the greatest ways we show love is by correcting sin and pointing it out. This is Matthew chapter 18. This is, this is what we call the church discipline passage in Scripture where Jesus himself says that, that when we see sin in one another's life, you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to go to our, somebody tell me what the word is, go to our what? Our brother. You see the family dynamics here? And you know what we do? We point out the sin with love and grace. We address it in their life. And, and, and the goal is this. We want them to see it. We want them to hate it because it's something that God hates. God hates all sin. God wants the purity of the body of Christ. And so we point it out with love and with grace. And what we call them to is repentance. This is what the scriptures say. Out of love, we call them to repentance to actually then be restored and enjoy, enjoy fellowship and communion with not only the body, but even with God himself. And if they don't listen, guess what the loving thing to do is? Just leave them alone, pat them on the back, and tell them it's fine. No. No, no. in fact, if you really love them, if you really love them, you want to know what you do? You go get somebody else, and you bring them with you, and, and you go together. You bring a witness with you, and you appeal to the brother or sister. And if they don't do that, guess what you do? You bring it to the church. You get the leadership involved. Why? You say, why, why are you doing this? This, this isn't love. You're, you're attacking me. You're hurting me. You're, you're pushing it into areas of my life that you don't have freedom to push into. And eh, wrong. Guess again. That's not what it means to be part of the family. You, you don't have that freedom and that luxury. When you are bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you are not your own. You are part of a family, and love means this. I love you too much to continue to walk in your sin. I love you too much to let you, listen, bring disrepute upon the one I love more than anything, Jesus Christ. My love for him drives my love for you, and my love for you says I need to come alongside you and love you by pointing out sin, calling you to repentance. You know what the Bible says? If, you've, if they repent, guess what? It says you've won your brother. But you know what? You know what's even loving to do? In this process, if they won't repent after being approached and addressed in their sin multiple times, you want to know what the Bible says the loving thing to do is? Put them out. Put them out. Excommunicate them from the body of Christ. You say, no, that has got to be unloving. That's not right. Take it up with Jesus. 
The, the point is, we don't, it's, not, it's not we don't like you anymore, and so you're not welcome here. The point is, we love you so much. We need to see you broken of your sin. You need to walk this out, and you need to do so in a way that Satan can have his way with you. If, if that's the only way where you're going to repent, then, then, then God, we entrust this person to your hands, and we put them out, and we hope and pray, Lord, that this, the weight of this world, the pressure, listen, of not being in communion and fellowship with the body will lead them in your kindness to repentance and restoration in the family of God. That's not evil, that's not unloving, that's not intolerant, that's not judgmental, it's called being a Christian. And let me just ask you this, how many Christians, how many churches genuinely love their people enough to confront them in their sin? Can I, can I say to you, like, if you, have a, if you have a brother or sister in Christ who is confronting you in your sin and is not afraid to do that, would you, would you call them this afternoon and thank them for how much they love you? And would you be that for others in the right way? You say, well, it can't be all about confronting sin. Right. And some of us want to stay there. That's not okay either. I want to show you the positive side of what it means to have genuine love, genuine devotion to one another. Do you see what he says here? Outdo one another in showing honor. I, this is so good. Christians are to be anxious to recognize and to give credit to other believers, to, to recognize and praise one another's accomplishments and defer to one another. Genuine love is expressed in mutual affection and mutual honor. And I love this verse. You wonder why? Because I, I am, I don't know if it's by nature or by nurture, I am a, maybe it's a byproduct of having three brothers, I am a competitive guy to the core. I know it's difficult to tell. I just I love competition. I love sports. And 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 you say, well, why do you love competition? I love to win. I just do. <laughs> to my listen, oftentimes, let me be real transparent with you, oftentimes to my shame. Sometimes I have a very unhealthy competitive nature that causes me to pridefully, sinfully compete with other people. But one of the things that I love about this verse is it gives us a license to be competitive in the body of Christ. That's so good. But, but listen, I think what Paul is doing here is so hell. He's playing off of one of the, the sins in the community, which is that they're competing with one another to show off about their gifts. Remember that? They're like, look, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. You're less than me. I'm more valuable than you. And he's saying, he's slapping their wrist and he's saying, what are you? no, that is not okay. You want some competition? Let me give you something to be competitive about. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be the best. Listen, this is, this is an exhortation for you to be a winner, okay? It's not in the self-help sense, but be a, do you want to be a winner? All right, out-compete in the family of God to show honor, to praise other people, to recognize others, to build them up. This is what we get to do in the family of God. This is not a prideful competitiveness. This is a humble competitiveness in the family of God. Instead of, I am awesome and I will destroy you, it's you are awesome and I will honor you. Instead of, I want to succeed, I want to be the best, I want to be recognized, it's I want you to succeed. 
I want you to be the best you can be in, in the family of God. I want you to be recognized. I mean, could you imagine that that's the way we operated in the family? Imagine that's the way you operated in your own family. How sweet would it be to be around one another? And you see, this is expressed in light of the gospel. Because this is, this is Jesus, Philippians 2. He counted others as more significant than himself. In humility, right? He, he saw them, the value and the significance, and he served others, and he sought their good. We are to look like Jesus to the interest of others. That's what the gospel teaches, to prefer to serve rather than be served. And lastly, listen, our love can only be genuine when it is experienced in spirits Sorry, when we were experiencing love in the gospel. That's what this next sentence is about. It's experienced in light of the gospel. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. You can almost hear him saying, get after it. Like, let's go. You see, responding to the experience of God's love in the gospel produces this zeal, this fervor, this passion, this drive, and all of this, he's telling us, don't be lazy, don't be slothful in your zeal to love one another. See, the truth is, is that we can all, in in our serving the Lord and serving each other, we can grow cold in our love. It can become mechanical. Oftentimes, we can be fatigued in it. We can be lazy because of our sin, because of our circumstances, and the call here is to be actively, intentionally engaged in this activity. Don't be apathetic, in other words, in your involvement in the family of God, in your honoring of others, in your genuine love. Our love, he tells us, is to be dispensed with burning energy to those around us. So what is it that fuels our love and service Is it doing it for recognition? Can't be that. Is it doing it for reciprocation? You know, I serve, so somebody will serve me. Listen, that will only, if if that's your your motivation for serving one another, for loving one another, I promise you, I mean, that, that will produce fatigue. It will produce frustration. It will produce failure. It will lead to nowhere good. You will become angry with others. You will despise others. And eventually, you'll walk away from others. I just want to say, in light of the the previous passage, outdo one another in showing honor, I think we should recognize that all of us need this. We thrive off of this kind of recognition and this honoring, but that is not ours to ask for or to focus on. Our job is to focus on being that for others, not seeking it from others. Agreed? Okay, so when we do that well, when when we focus on doing that, I promise you, God will sustain you. God will strengthen you. He will pour out encouragement into your soul as you encourage and honor those around you. The call here, listen church, is to be unbridled in your dispensing of love. You say, how do we do that? He says it right here. Be fervent in spirit. You say, what spirit is he talking about? Is he talking about our spirit? You know, like the human spirit? Or is he talking about the Holy Spirit? Yes. 
He's talking about both. In fact, listen to what one author says. He says, it is the deep work of the Spirit that will do the work in your heart. Our spirit set aflame by God's Spirit. Another commentator says, believers are to burn and seethe in their spirits, but the means by which this is done is the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to love the body like this, you yourself, listen church, you need to have experienced the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. To be fueled up and fired up by the Holy Spirit, it's not some kind of emotional experientialism, but a kind of experience that is a product of faith. Too many of us are obsessed with what we do or do not feel. We, we try to run the Christian life on feelings. That's what we think it means to have this, this kind of zeal for the Lord, our feelings. I hear this all the time. I don't feel close to the Lord. I don't feel the Lord's presence. I don't feel the, 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 the love of God. Listen, our feelings have very little and oftentimes absolutely nothing to do with reality. It, it's just to say, if you came up to me and said, Ian, I don't feel like I have any gas in my car. I don't care. <laughs> do you have gas in your car? This is not a subjective reality. It's an objective reality. And don't you see in the Christian life, we grab hold of the objective reality of what God says by faith. God says it. We believe it. Amen. God says, I love you. We believe it. We don't wait for this feeling of love to well up in our hearts. We believe it's true because God says it's true. We walk by faith, not by sight. Listen, one day you have all of the experiences your heart could ever desire. You will stand before your Savior face to face. You will touch him. You will see him. You will hug him. You will adore him in very physical ways. Listen, but right now, right now, you walk by faith and you believe in what the gospel says is true about you. You are loved by God. You are a son of the king. You are approved and made righteous because of the gift of his son for you. That's true. The real question is, do you believe it? The psalmist always expressed a lack of feeling near to God, but you know what they do? They get to the end of the song, like, Lord, where are you? How long? Where? If you feel so far away, then you know what they do? They preach the truth into their soul. God, I know you are near. I know, Lord, you're a rock and a refuge for those who run into you. I know these things are true. Your only aim in mind is to do this lastly. Listen, you want to know how you, you, you have a genuine love? Serve the Lord. You serve the Lord. We belong to Him. And this, again, it's a, it's a reminder. It's, it's a reminder of the, the radical nature of the Christian life. It's about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything I do, I do for Jesus. He is my dominating goal. He is my only aim. We love what He loves. And you want to know who Jesus loves? He loves his bride. He loves the church. And when we see how much he loves his church, that he would give his one and only son to save her, to redeem her, to purify her, listen. You say, what does this, this vision of the Savior's love compel in us? Here, here's what it compels in us. We are not to hunker down 
and to cower at the secularization of the culture or its anti-Christian ideologies. Instead, we are to serve the Lord. We are to live under His lordship, under His rule. We are to do what He asks us to do. We edify the body of Christ. We equip them for the work of the ministry. We evangelize the world with the hope that they too will see the love of God in Christ Jesus. We honor, honor one another, listen, ultimately to exalt our Savior. Savior. 